Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Well, uh, hey, uh, I'm excited to be back. Uh, my wife mentioned a moment ago that we were on vacation last week, and I do want to thank our entire team. Um, it's pretty cool to be able to go on vacation seven months in as a church, and stuff still happens uh, without, without fail. And so I want to thank and honor our dream team and all the guys that served last week. Uh, can we give it up for those guys? I know that they are all around the room, and they're serving. Specifically, I do want to take a moment and thank our very own David Escobedo for bringing the word last week. Man, he can preach. That was awesome. I listened to the sermon uh, while sitting on my lanai in Maui, and uh, it was equally as anointed while I was hanging out there. Well, hey, we're going to get moving because uh, we're running out of time already. So uh, we have been in a series for the last couple of weeks entitled Rooted, and we've been discussing this thought of being firmly established and rooted in the things of God. Um, I believe that you can live marginally committed and experience, experience a portion of what God has for you in this Christian life, or you can be the all in fully committed, rooted in God, uh, all the chips pushed in, and and you can experience everything that God has for you in this life. And we don't want to be the kind of half-baked, half-committed kind of church. We want to be the people that are fully committed to everything God has for us so that we can see the fullness of his fruitfulness in our lives. And so in the first week, we talked about having hearts that were able to receive God's word, the soil of our heart, and and making sure that the dirt was right. Uh, In the second week, we talked about Psalms chapter 1 and how those who meditate on the word of God, that is speak out the word of God, uh, they'll be like trees that are planted beside streams of water and regardless of the season, good season, bad season, anywhere in between, they can bear fruit. They can be fruitful regardless of what life throws at them. And then last week, our good friend David uh, preached about being committed to the house of God, rooted in the church, the local church, and you're doing it. You're sitting in the room this morning, you are rooted in the house, and because of that, we experience a passion for prayer, a passion for God's presence, and a passion for people. And today, we're gonna go into the fourth week, and I'm, I'm really excited about this topic because I think, I think it's pretty pivotal. I think it's, it's an important one that we have to get established in our life, and that is I wanna talk to you about being rooted in the right identity, understanding who you are in Christ. I think that this is an area that, that is so often under attack as believers, and lies are coming at us every which way from our world and from the enemy, and we need to be secure in who God has called us to be. We need to understand what God says about us. We need to know our identity. And I want to start off today uh, by offering up a thesis. If you're taking notes, you can write this down, um, and, and we'll prove this out to be true over the next couple of moments. But here's what I want to explore today. I believe when it comes to identity that you will live according to your perceived identity. In other words, your lifestyle, your actions, are the byproduct of the way you see yourself. You may not realize this until you kind of peel back the layers of the facade that we put on, but that image you see in the mirror really does dictate the way you live your life. If you see yourself as the man of God, the woman of God, above and not beneath, the head and not the tail, blessed, highly favored, chosen of God, a royal priesthood. If you can walk with some spiritual swagger in your chest out because you understand who you are, then that will directly affect the way you live your life. It'll affect the way you make decisions. It'll affect the way you do relationships. It'll affect the way you treat your employment. It'll affect everything. It will change the way you live. But on the contrary, if you believe that you are a loser, that you are prone to failure, 
that you will always be this way, that things are never gonna get better, that this is the kind of person your dad was and your granddad was, and so that's probably the kind of person you will be, then guess what? You sign up for prolonged seasons of living according to your own perception of that broken identity. We live according to our perceived identity. And this is not a surprise to the enemy. He's keenly aware of the fact that the way we see ourselves will determine how we live. And this is why you are constantly under attack from the devil to believe the lies that he would speak over your life, to believe the lies about what he says regarding your future, what he says regarding your condition, what he says regarding your failure. And we are constantly under attack to get us to doubt our identity in Christ, thus causing us to live at a lower level than God would call us to live. So the way I see it today if that is true, if our perception of ourselves directly affects the way we live, then my job over the next 30 minutes and two seconds is that I would allow you to see who you truly are. That I could talk about what God says regarding our identity, that we would get rooted in the right identity because if you see yourself correctly, it will directly affect the way that you live. So I believe today that Maybe, and this is the picture I saw when I was praying this week, that maybe in the spirit, some who were looking here would just kind of get a, a new perspective on life. Instead of looking at the situation they find themselves in or looking at the, the, the mounds of failure, that the Holy Spirit's going to tilt up your head and you're going to begin to see what God says about you today, maybe for the first time. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to the book of Romans. And uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3. And then we're going to read one more scripture. We'll pray and we will get into it. Romans chapter three, verse 21 says this, but now God has shown us a way to be made righteous without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. We are righteous. Now, uh, one more scripture, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, it says this. Though a righteous person falls seven times, they will get up. Uh, I want to I wanna title this chat today... Um, a, a, a stolen phrase from, I think it's Life Alert. Uh, and if you never saw a Life Alert commercial, then from Steve Urkel from Family Matters in the 1990s. I've fallen and I can't get up, all right? <laughs> I've fallen and I can't get up. Or if you prefer the one-hit wonder, Chumbawamba, I get knocked down, but I get up again. And... Okay, you've never heard it. Okay, cool, awesome. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Jesus, we love you this morning. And God, I thank you that we get to celebrate so many things today. I thank you for the stories uh, that we just heard in baptism. I thank you for the proposals that we get to celebrate today. Uh, I thank you that we get to celebrate uh, that in one more game, the Warriors are gonna sweep the Trailblazers. And um, Father, we're just grateful for all you're doing in the kingdom right now. Uh, and Lord, I pray over these few couple of moments that we have together today, I pray that you would do what only you could do. No man can talk to somebody and convince them of something that, you know, in human effort that, that isn't of you. But Lord, if you speak today, if by your word you would get beyond the surface, beyond the facade into the heart of where people are living, I know that you can establish a fresh identity in them. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak today. You would mark us today, and we leave this place different than when we walked in, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, a little survey for you today. How many of you guys have a job? How many employed folks in the room? Awesome. Anyone looking for a job? Okay, a few people. All right. 
If you are an employer, you can look around. Those are called options for you. All right, keep your hand up if you have a job. Have a job, have a job. Okay, now, how many of you like your job? Okay, we lost a few. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, for those of you that's, that still have your hand raised, you like your job, how many of you, even though you like your job, there are aspects of your job that you don't really care for? Yeah, you raised your hand higher. Well done, okay. <laughs> okay, you can put your hands down. Yeah, it doesn't take long uh, to, to understand that regardless of the job, even if you are working your dream job today, that job you went to school for, you prayed for, you believed for, and now you finally got it, regardless of the job, there are always aspects of a job that are undesirable. They're, they're a little unglamorous, the, the parts of the job that aren't that great. And this is true for anyone, the president of the United States, the entertainer. I'm sure Beyonce hates parts of her job, absolutely. Like, it doesn't matter what you do, there are aspects of it that aren't great. And uh, I'm going to tell you something today that might, you know, change your perspective of me a little bit, but that's okay. I think it'll, it'll help us all out. Yea, even the pastor of the church, although I love my job, there are aspects of my job that I don't particularly care for. And I know that this is not like a job. It's like a calling and I'm supposed to do it and all that stuff. But just follow me here for a moment. Like, let me start with the good stuff. I love that every single week we do church people give their life to Jesus. I love that every week someone's lifting a hand or 10 people are lifting a hand and they're filling out a card and they're saying, I made a decision today to follow Jesus. I'm gonna serve him the rest of my days. And at eight months old, nearly 250 people in this church have given their life to Christ for the first time. Come on, I love that. that is, that's worth doing the job, absolutely. Um, I, I love this part. I like preaching. It's fun. Um, I, uh, I enjoy mining the Word of God and trying to find ways to make it relevant to our everyday life and help people understand that this isn't just some archaic book that doesn't apply any longer, but it speaks specifically to the situation you find yourself in. This part's fun for me. Um, I love the stories. I love that we get to celebrate proposals and you know, people getting pregnant and, and, and getting to hear what God's doing in people's lives. That, that stuff is awesome to me. Uh, but there are some aspects of this job that are not so glamorous. Um, I'll give you a few. Uh, I, I, I don't like that as a pastor, um, often there are unrealistic expectations placed on me. Uh, specifically when it comes to like fixing people. Um, I was a youth pastor for, for many years. And it's amazing how quickly parents hand their children over to you and expect you to fix their broken kids. <laughs> like moms would call all the time like, oh, Johnny, he's just having a hard time. And I just, Pastor, you need to fix Johnny. Will you take Johnny under your wing, meet with Johnny twice a week, and take responsibility for Johnny and, and, and just make him a good kid? I'm like, sure, why not? You know, it probably has nothing to do with the fact that you don't go to church, you don't read the Bible, uh, you didn't raise him right, and now it's my job to fix him. No, absolutely, I'll, I'll, I'll fix Johnny. Like, I get him for one hour a week on Wednesday nights. Easily done. Unrealistic expectations. Um, I don't like that as a pastor, everything I say comes under scrutiny. Some of you here today who've been in the body of Christ for an extended period of time and you have an established theology, uh, you are measuring every word that I say <laughs> as the self-appointed Berean that you are <laughs> so that you can find the one sentence in 35 minutes that you disagree with and then write me an email or a text message about it later and tell me why you disagree with that particular theology and why I have no idea and no business being up here. That part's not fun for me. Um, add in the spiritual weight, and, you know, the, the, the target on your back as a, as a spiritual leader, and at least the pay's good. Nope. Um, so, <laughs> who wants to sign up to be a pastor now? Okay, okay. <laughs> no, there's some, there's, some, there's some negative aspects to this for sure. Again, it's my dream job. I love what we get to do. But, but I, I think that my, my least favorite part about pastoring 
and this is probably true for any leader in church because this happens to all of us. I hate seeing people fall. I hate seeing people dismiss themselves from the family of God because of a single failure. I hate seeing people who love Jesus, who are running after him, who are pursuing the call of God on their life, who, who, who are heading the right direction in one moment because of one mistake or one failure say to themselves, I've fallen and I can't get up. I, I hate seeing the empty chairs in church that used to be occupied by people with their hands lifted and a big smile on their face running after God, but because of a momentary lapse of judgment, they don't feel they qualify to be in the gathering any longer. I hate that stuff. It irks me, it grieves me, and even now at eight months old as a church, there are seats that are empty that used to be occupied by people that started out this journey with us eight months ago that somewhere along the way, they decided my failure has defined who I am and I can no longer gather with the believers. I don't belong in the presence of God any longer. I've disqualified myself because of a single failure. I hate that. And it's not because we haven't reached out in text, because we have. And it's not because God has not forgiven them, because he has. Here's what it is. I believe it's because people have found their identity in their failure. They, they have decided that that moment gets to borrow from their future, to steal from the plan of God for their life and define who they are. They have identified with their failure. I've noticed this about my life and you've probably noticed it about yours. It is incredibly easy to take the moments of failure in our lives and ascribe identity to it. Say, so this is who I am. Instead of, I made a mistake, it's, I am the mistake. Instead of, man, I failed, it's, I am a failure. Instead of, ah, that was stupid, why'd I do that? It's, I am stupid and I always do that. There is a huge difference between those two statements. One understands that it's a momentary lapse of judgment that we can recover from. The other makes a permanent state and says, this is who I am, this is who I will always be, and it becomes our very identity. I was talking to a friend of mine this last week, and I said, hey, um, he oversees a drug rehabilitation program, and I said, hey, how, how important is this idea of understanding our true identity apart from our actions? Like, when people fail and they blow it and maybe they relapse into you know, the, the drug that they said they would never relapse into or they pick up the bottle of alcohol again, how important is it for them to disassociate identity with that? And he said, oh my gosh, it's absolutely huge. It is, in fact, it's the starting point for freedom. And, and he made this statement, a quote that I want to read to you because I think it's so powerful. He said, overcoming addiction is impossible without first having the ability to separate who you are from what you've done. Yet I think that's so hard for many of us to separate our actions from our identity. So often we allow our failure to identify who we are. And if I could say something today that is neither polished nor poetic, but I think it is true. Ready, listen up, you can write this one down. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Seriously? We're gonna let one moment one failure, determine who we are. Determine whether or not God has a future for our life. 
determine whether or not we, we can gather among the elect believers any longer. How ridiculous is that? You wouldn't use that logic in any other area of life, ever. Yet we do in the spirit all the time. Like imagine, those of you who've raised kids, imagine you're teaching your kid to walk for the first time. Guess what happens after they take their first step? They fall. That's what they do. So are you going to allow that moment, that fall, that failure to identify them? You're never going to be a walker. <laughs> really? That's it? That's what you got? You fell. You're not getting up. No. When they grow up and they learn to ride a bike, they're hanging around in the court riding the bike. What's the first thing that happens? They fall on the bike. Like, oh, you're never going to be a bike rider. That's it. You just stay there. Roller skates for you, you know. Aggressive inline roller skating. That's what we're getting. That's for you, baby. <laughs> no. I, I remember um, when my daughter was maybe five or six months old, uh, and I had never been alone with her for, for, for any extended period of time, and my wife decided to leave me at the house with our baby girl. And uh, it was terrifying as a father, because I'm like, I don't know if she's going to be alive when my wife comes back. I, I, I have nothing to offer this child except for, you know, pats on the back. But... Uh, I was responsible for taking care of her while my wife was gone. And when my wife left, uh, shortly thereafter, my daughter did what most babies do. She went to the bathroom in her diaper. And so I said, okay, I can do this. I can change my diaper by myself. Not my diaper, her diaper by myself. <laughs> I'm good. Um, so I set her up on this little changing station contraption that we had on top of a dresser in her bedroom. And uh, she's sitting up there. And so I, I take off her diaper. And uh, after I put uh, the new one on, I I turn around and I walk over to this thing called a diaper genie on the other side of the room. And I put it in a diaper. By the way, do not buy one. Waste of money. They do not work. Uh, but it's supposed to keep the smell away. So I put the diaper in the diaper genie. And as I turn back around and I look across the room, I see my little five-month baby girl rolling off of her changing table and off the side of the dresser. Now, I don't know if you've ever dropped anything valuable before. Um, but what's the first thing you do when you drop something valuable? Right, you try to catch it with your foot. So, so I go running across the room and I stick out my foot to catch my daughter. And I had miscalculated the velocity at which I was running. And so instead of catching my daughter, I kicked my daughter. <laughs> she hits the sheetrock up against the wall. I had some explaining to do when my wife got home. It was, it was rough, for sure. Don't judge me, okay? Whatever. Now, I let my daughter fall, but what if I had let that moment define who I am? <laughs> I would never be able to serve in kids' ministry. Don't let them in there, probably kick all the kids, you know. Like, I would be an unfit father if I allowed that moment to define who I am. So many opportunities I would have missed out with on my daughter, like because I kicked her that one time because she fell. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to define our lives by a single failure. To make one moment determine who we truly are. That doesn't calculate anywhere. And this is why the scripture tells us in Proverbs chapter 24, that though a righteous person falls, they get back up. They don't stay down. No, they get back up again. In fact, they don't just fall one time. 
They didn't just drop the baby and kick it once. How many times did they fall? Come on, how many times? Seven times. Now, now seven is a significant number because numbers in the Bible always have a meaning. And the number seven in the Bible, it means complete, total, and perfect. In other words, though a righteous person falls completely, though they fall totally, though they fall over and over and over again, they are a perfect faller. They continue to get back up. Now, even as I say that, there are people in the room saying, come on. But on the inside, there's a few folks that are saying, well, that's great for the righteous person. But that's not who I am. Like, that's cool that the righteous do that. But on the list of words I would use to identify myself, righteousness is nowhere on there. There is no way I can identify as the righteous. Well, then perhaps, my friend, you need a new definition for righteousness. Because you might qualify, even though you don't realize it. If I were to go around the room this morning and hand out this microphone and I say, hey, could you give me a definition for righteousness? While the answers might vary, they would all kind of point to the same direction. And that is that most of us would define righteousness as not sinning, not failing, not falling. If I can live a life where I don't fall, then I qualify to be righteous. Okay, well, let's follow that logic for a moment. It says in Proverbs 24, 16, that though the righteous fall, they get back up. Well, that scripture would be absolutely pointless. We wouldn't need it in the Bible if righteousness was based on not falling because the guy would have never fallen in the first place. Let's take it a step further. Romans chapter three, verse 23, which we read earlier. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and all have fallen and righteousness is based on not falling, then guess what? Nobody ever qualifies to be righteous, which means that every promise and every good thing God has written in the word to the righteous is nothing more than a cruel cosmic carrot dangle that we will never be able to lay hold of. I don't know about you, but that does not sound like the character and nature of my God, that he puts promises in his word that we would never be able to lay hold of just to taunt us. Absolutely not. Thus, there must be a different definition for righteousness than the one we've come up with. There must be a different way to be made righteous that isn't found in not following all the rules. So back to Romans. Let's see what Paul says here in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, but now God has shown us a way to be made righteous without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. Stop. This is the most basic, fundamental truth that every single person in the room must be convinced of if we are ever going to take another step into the things of God. He starts off by saying, God has shown us a way to be made righteous. That word in the Greek is dikaiosene. And here's what it means. It means to be completely perfect and without sin. You're like, see, I told you, that's what it means. Okay, but wait. What does he say? He says, God has shown us a way to be completely pure and without sin that is not found in being completely pure and without sin. He has shown us a way to be made righteous that is not found in living the perfectly righteous life. Does that sound too good to be true to anybody else but me? <laughs> That's that diet and exercise plan that involves no diet and exercise. Lose weight, never pick up a weight. Like, okay, sign me up. I want that. Seems like a contradiction, right? 
okay, tell me more, Paul. If God has shown me a way to be made righteous without fulfilling the requirements of the law, then how do I be made righteous? He says, we are made righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ in the finished work of the cross, in the fact that he lived a perfect life that none of us could live, and he gave up his life on a cross as the perfect sacrifice so that none of us would ever have to worry about the penalty for our sin, but we could put our trust in him and him alone. And by doing so, we are made righteous. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are, where you're from, as long as you trust him. (laughs) Simple faith in the finished work of Jesus is what makes you righteous. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're going to do. It doesn't matter how many times you face planted or how many relapses or how many marriages or how many bankruptcies. You are made righteous, not by your own actions, but by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, period. I'm gonna preach myself happy. This is gonna get good. Now, By placing your faith in Jesus Christ, it means that you're placing your faith in nothing else. I can't trust in Jesus and in myself at the same time. I wonder how many of us have placed our faith for righteousness who are finding that identity not in faith in Jesus, but in faith in ourselves. Let me ask it like this. Do you feel more righteous when you live good, when you come early to church and you serve, when you tithe, when you don't yell at the dog or kick your kids? Yes, I said that correctly. (laughs) When you live righteously, do you feel more righteous? Or, Or let me ask it like this. Do you feel unrighteous when you blow it when you fly off the handle, when you commit that sin you promised God you would never commit again, in those moments, do you feel the weight of unrighteousness? If the answer is yes to either of those questions, guess what? Your faith is in the wrong source. If your identity begins to shift based on your actions, If you feel unrighteous and unqualified based on what you've done, then your faith is not in Jesus Christ and him alone. Your faith is in your own ability to hold it all together. And the Bible calls that self-righteousness, and it's listed among the sins that God absolutely hates. No, righteousness is not a feeling. It's not a scorecard. It's not a track record. It is the God-given identity to any single person on this planet who puts their trust in Jesus and in him alone. It is ours for the taking. Now, let me offer this disclaimer because I said earlier I hate when people do this. I have to offer this because I'm not saying that this means live like hell and you're gonna go to heaven, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying like, I'm righteous, You know, driving along the freeway, "Mm, I'm righteous. I'm righteous, I'm righteous. I can do whatever I want to do because Jesus says I'm righteous. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, a true encounter with God's grace does not excuse the ability to continue to sin. It empowers us to overcome sin. So we are not here to say that we're righteous and we can do whatever we want to do. No, our desire should be to live a righteous life. What I am saying, however, is that when you blow it because you will... 
You are not stripped of your righteous identity because of your failure and because of your fall. But in that moment, when God looks at you, he still declares over your life, this is my righteous son. This is my righteous daughter. They are completely pure as if they never did it in the first place. Let me prove it to you. Romans chapter three, verse 23. Here's what it says. For everyone has sinned. Welcome to the team. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet... God. In other words, despite what I just said, despite the fact that everyone sins and they're going to continue to sin and we will all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares, speaks out, looks at you and identifies you and says, you are righteous. The word picture here in the Greek, I love diving into some of this stuff. It is a word picture of a courtroom setting. And it assumes that there is a guilty party that is on trial. And everybody in the courtroom knows that they're guilty. The judge knows they're guilty. The jury knows they're guilty. Everybody knows this guy did the crime and he needs to do the time. And right before the gavel drops in that moment, all of the people who have the power to sentence him to death say, you know what? We're going to make a declaration over you that is inconsistent with your actions, but it's in grace. We're going to cover the wrong that you've committed we're going to take responsibility for, our, for it ourselves. And we're going to declare in the hearing of all these witnesses that despite the fact everyone knows you did this, you are sin-free. You are pure as if you never did it. You are righteous. Quite literally in the courtroom of your life, when every finger is pointed at you, including your own, and everybody knows you did it, God still looks at you and he points at you and he says, hey, you're righteous. How does he do that? <laughs> Seriously? Like, the second I blew it, God still looks at me. If my faith is in Jesus and he says, hey, you're still righteous. How does God do that? That seems, that seems way too good to be true. Here's how. Because he's God. <laughs> and he can do and say whatever he wants to do and say. And because when God says something, a reality is created that did not exist prior to that moment. I mentioned this a few, a few weeks ago, that the most creative power in the universe is the voice of God. When God speaks, something happens. In the beginning of time, when the earth was formless and it was void and there was nothing here, God spoke and he said, let there be light, let there be oceans, let there be land, let there be animals. And the moment those words left his mouth, a reality that did not exist prior to that moment began to exist. When God opens his mouth and he makes a declaration, even if that declaration has never existed prior to that moment or it is inconsistent with the circumstances of that moment, a new reality is created. If God looked at this wall and he said, that wall is blue, even though that wall is clearly orange, filled with weird characters, the moment that word blue left his mouth, that entire wall would turn blue because God cannot speak without things changing. So when God looks at your life and despite the inconsistencies and despite the failures and despite the fall, looks at you and says, you are righteous. It doesn't matter if the cards and the chips are stacked against you in that moment. The second the word righteousness leaves his mouth, it creates a reality for you that did not exist prior to that moment and you become who he says you are. You are the righteousness of Christ Jesus by faith. You are who he says you are not who you think you are. It's time to understand your identity, to get rooted in this identity of righteousness. 
If you do not understand that that's what God says you are, then you will carry yourself in an unpredictable, unfamiliar, ungodly way. If the thesis is true and that we will live according to our perceived identity, if you don't think that you're the righteousness of God, then you're going to carry yourself at a low level of living. But listen, when you understand that you're righteous, guess what? Not only will you carry yourself as such, when you fall, you can get back up. When you fail, you don't stay there on the ground limping, saying, I've fallen and I can't get up. No, you immediately stand back up and say, I'm brushing it off and I'm running after Jesus again. Why? Because that's what the righteous people do. I love the wording of this scripture. It doesn't say that though the righteous fall, it's a possibility for them to get back up. It does not say though the righteous fall, there's a good chance they're going to get back up. It is a definitive statement. They shall, they will get back up. There is something inside a righteous person who understands who they are in God that refuses to be kept down by their failures. It says, no, I, I might have fallen. Things might not look good, but I am getting back up. And that's what I want for you today. Uh, let me offer this illustration uh, just before they leave. And, and I, as I do so, the band, you guys can come. I was uh, shopping on Amazon earlier this week. And uh, I purchased a new toy for myself here. And most of us have seen um, one of these before. Uh, this is a punching bag for children or adults, no judgment. And uh, it, it, it's a really simple piece of technology, okay? Um, you fill the thing up with air, and then you fill the bottom of it up with water. And the water at the bottom of this thing acts as an anchor, a root, uh, something firm that regardless of what happens up here, as long as that is weightier, as long as that is established, then as this thing falls over, it doesn't matter. It'll, it'll just pop right back up. <laughs> now, I tested it without putting the water in the bottom. And interestingly enough, when it didn't have a root, when it didn't have an anchor, it would just stay down on the ground like this. But the second you added the right weight, the right anchor, the right root, it just, it just popped back up. You know what's interesting? It doesn't matter how hard you hit this thing. It's just going to pop back up. Some expensive equipment over here. Let's move this back up. Regardless of the outside circumstances, regardless of how bad it gets, this thing is just going to keep popping back up. I, I think this is what Jesus wants you to look like today. I think we need to have a firmly established root of righteousness, something that's weightier than our circumstance, something that's weightier than our failure, and we are established in our heart knowing what God says about us because when we know who we are, it doesn't matter how hard we fall, whether it's bankruptcy, 
or it's divorce, or it's relapse, or whatever it is you walk into, you will continue to pop back up because you understand this is who I am, I'm rooted in it, I'm established in it, and I'm gonna get back up again. Come on, how many would say today that you're sick and tired of the enemy looking down at you saying, I don't wanna be here any longer. No, you need to get back up. You need to get back up in the spirit. You need to try again. You need to dust yourself off again and say, I'm going to commit to the word again. I'm going to commit to prayer again. I'm going to commit to freedom again. I'm going to commit to relationship again. I'm going to commit to what God's calling me to commit to again because I will not stay down. Though the righteous fall, they get back up. This is what God wants for you. Amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.